from the Kramer Basketball Headquarters in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. You are listening to the Coach's Edge Podcast, powered by Coach. Here is your host, Steve Kramer. What is an official's official? We talk about a man's man, a woman's woman. We brought in an official's official today to talk about the NFHS points of emphasis heading into this basketball season. We realize that some uh, states are up and running. Some are just about to get their basketball season underway. And we brought in Chip Clark. This has become a yearly interview. We are in, heading into the third season of the Coach's Edge podcast with basketball season coming along with it. And Chip has joined us every single uh, preseason or early season to break down some of the incoming points of emphasis for officials around the United States. He's the best guy to do it. So, Chip, thank you for joining the Coach's Edge podcast once again. And why don't you introduce yourself to some of our listeners? And Steve, thanks again for having me back. It's it's always a pleasure to join you every year. Hey, I appreciate the kind words. I don't know if I'm the official's official, but... I definitely do my homework and study, and I love being able to come on and share with with your listeners kind of the points of emphasis coming into each season, so that hopefully we can be we can have officials and coaches and teams on the same page. I know it's very difficult, um, you know, with with games offici- seemingly officiated different ways across the country. You know, there are a set of ground rules, there are a set of directives for the national federation, um, and sometimes it may seem that they're not followed as strictly from state to state, but the more that we can be on the same page, the more that we can do shows like this to be able to introduce those points of emphasis and hopefully have coaches thinking the same way as officials on some of these things, um, the better it's going to be for all key stakeholders in the game. So I appreciate you having me on. Again, you know, Chip Clark, um, I, I'm i a men's college official. I still work some high school games, a, co- a high school official as well. Um, do those from time to time when I'm available. Um, I'm also um, on the admin team for Deep Dive Ref, um, which is an online training service and membership subscription membership for um, officials looking to grow their game and to get better and build on their foundation to improve as officials and get to the next level um, and and continue to grow in their game. So um, we do weekly training videos for officials um, that that I help put together. And we got a great, um, great staff at DDR. It's it's owned by Rodney Mott, who's an NBA uh, referee. He does a great job with the business, and and uh, Martin Coda does a great job handling a lot of the day-to-day um, stuff and content that's being put out. So definitely go give us a follow if you're a coach listening to this and you want to follow Deep Diver up on Twitter. We post five – we're in a five-by-five five, um, plays during the season, so we post five plays a day for, for five days of the work week um, on Twitter and, and kind of break them down and have people comment on them in the comment section. So – We'd love for you guys to, to hop in there and participate, see a lot of the other officials that are commenting on those things on Twitter and Instagram and um, and even Facebook from time to time. So, uh, but man, I'm, I'm excited to be here. Um, oh, last introduction point. I know you had mentioned this. We talked about this. So one of the other cool things that I get to do in addition to officiating and being on the deep dive ref um, admin team is I'm a statistician for the Orlando Magic and the Lakeland Magic. Um, so in all my free time, I know, right? Um, and all my free time during the season, if there happens to be a Orlando Magic home game, um, when I'm off one night from officiating, um, I get to go up there and, and sit at the scores table, be a statistician. And if you think officiating or coaching is stressful, 
just be a statistician for an NBA team because you have to be perfect. Like literally these pe- these players' stats, their contracts depend on their stats. Even something as simple as how many minutes they played in a game. You have to make sure you have the right people in the game and your, your software and your system. You got to make sure the right stats are given. You, you're on the, the headphones with Secaucus making sure like, okay, is this stat correct? Oh, it's not. Okay, I'll go back in and change it to give this person an assist. You know, so it's it's super stressful. People think it's great. You know, you get to watch the game. And while you can watch some of it, you're constantly inputting stats for every single thing that they do on the court. Um, so, it, but it's it's a fun gig, man. It's a, We work with a great team there with the Orlando Magic. And so it's, it's fun stuff. And then, you know, the Lakeland Magic is the G League affiliate of the Orlando Magic. And they're right here close to home. I live in Lakeland. Yeah. So they're about two miles down the road. And so when I'm available, not working with the Orlando Magic, if they have a home game, you know, then I'll, I'll go work with them. So it's fun times though, man. Basketball season is here. It's the busiest, but most exciting time of the year. And like we talked about before we hopped on, thank goodness for understanding spouses who, uh, who allow us to, and, you know, really kind of come alongside of us to help us get through these, these four or five months of just, you know, high volume um, work. So I'm excited about it, man. You talk about uh, teamwork. And that's that's teamwork at home right there that it takes to be yes. successful, no doubt about it. And and just yeah, I wanted to make sure you introduce yourself. Sometimes you know if we have a a guest who's been on before, we 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 don't have injuries, but there's so much you have going on, and you you have feelers at the high school level, the college level, and the NBA level. So that it's just really cool. And obviously, with those different experiences, it gives you such a big view of of the game, right? Compared to yeah. seeing it from one specific point of view. So as we get into points of emphasis, reducing illegal contact is one of them. And uh, with some bullet points of the hand check, play around the post, some off ball play and, and movement. And so I'll turn this over to you as far as how you want to get started. And, you know, what are some of the things that we're trying to emphasize this season? Excellent. And, and Steve, as we go through these points of emphasis, if at any time you have a question about something I say, or you want me to drill down on something, just interrupt me and say, Hey, can you go back on that? Let's, let's talk about that some more, you know, what are you seeing on this or what do you, so I I want this to be something that's super beneficial for coaches and not just me regurgitating something maybe they've already read. Um, I want to, as we discussed prior to the the meeting today is I want us to be able to give something, a comprehensive analysis of these points of emphasis so that coaches can hear things from an official's perspective you know, kind of hear the things that we're looking for on the court during any given game, stuff like that. So anything you think is going to be helpful to your listeners, you know, tell me to pause and we'll we'll kind of go back and reiterate those things and dig a little deeper. So, all right. So um, you mentioned reducing illegal contact is a um, directive and a point of emphasis for high school officials this year per the National Federation of High School. Um, we, I'm actually really excited about this because for the last few years, um, at the NCAA men's, you know, college level, um, we've we've had in those league in our leagues, you know, directives to reduce physicality to create freedom of movement. All right, reduce physicality to create freedom of movement. That's something that the you know the NCAA has identified as something very important in today's game. It's needed, and so they've instructed us to do that. And now it's finally trickling down to NFHS, which which I like. You know, there's obviously. You know, from a player's background, I used to play. I wasn't near as good as, as you or, or some of your listeners. Um, but, you know, from a player's or coach's standpoint, you know, 
a lot of times you hear them talk about physicality in an enduring, endearing way. You know, it's something we, we play real physical. We play fast, physical, all that stuff. Well, you know, that's great and it has its place, but we got to make sure that that physicality is legal from a referee's standpoint. Okay. So we're going to go over a few scenarios, you know, on this show today that, that are common scenarios that occur in the game that maybe coaches have taught a certain way but may put their players at a greater risk of being called for a foul if they continue to do it the way that they've been teaching. Um, and I know some of it might be like, oh, man, that sucks. You know, as a coach, you know, they may be, oh, man, I don't like this. I don't like this directive, you know, or whatever. But that's that's the way the game is going. You know, fast-paced games, um, freedom of movement is, a pre- you know, at a premium, it's, it's a very important um, part of what they how they want us to officiate now is allow more freedom of movement. So let's dig right into it. One of the first ways that that a lot of times coaches may figure, you know, may think of as nitpicky by the officials, but it's a rule. And and by rule, or excuse me, according to the NFHS this year, they want us to really have an emphasis on enforcing the rules as written. All right. So that's a directive from them as well as to enforce the rules as written. So when we look at rules like the hand check rule, under the contact rule um, in rule 10, section seven of the NFHS rule book, um, you're going to, it gets into hand checking and it talks about four different things, you know, that, that are penalized, you know, for hand checks. So placing two hands on a ball handler. Okay. So a player holding the ball, whether they're in the post or the perimeter or wherever, if a player's holding the ball and that defender places two hands on that ball handler, that's a hand check foul by rule. If they place one hand on, and keep it on, you know, so that's that's a hand check foul as well, technically, by the rule book. Um, if they put one hand on, take it off, and put another hand on, or that same hand back on, that's another way. Or if they use an extended arm bar. So if they keep that arm bar on the dribbler or the ball handler, um, then that is technically a hand check foul according to NFHS rules. And with that said... One quick, one quick question. Yeah. This is great. This is great stuff. So... The contacting an opponent more than once with the same hand or alternating hands, as you're officiating a game, is there, because a ball handler could be, they could be, you know, picking it up, pivoting, they could be on a dribble, they could pick it up again, they could have the basketball for quite a long period of time. Is there a time frame that you're giving a player, okay, they touched them once, five seconds later, they touched them again, or is this more in succession? You know, and, and here's the thing. I, I mean, I'm going to tell you, and, and I know we're not supposed to go off personal philosophies. There's no set time limit, but it, it really boils down to um, whether or not there was an advantage gained by this. Um, it's, it's less of a time frame. All right. So obviously, technically speaking, if they put one hand on and take it off, that's not a that's not a hand check foul, you know. Um, if they put it back on, technically it's supposed to be. But things we look for, and I'm glad you brought that up is if that if that contact doesn't impede the freedom of movement of that ball handler, then we can talk them out of that. Hey, no more hands 23. You know, and so we use preventative officiating tactics in that situation. If it's not if it has no effect on the play, hey, hey, hands off 23, hands off 22. Hey, no more hands. And we say that during live ball action. Coaches, if you hear us say that, probably go ahead and put that antenna up and say, hey, I need to tell my player number 23, you know, when that player catches the ball in the post, he can't have that extended arm bar on him for a long period of time to try to defend that play. Because if he tries to move 
and he impedes his freedom of movement, then he's going to get called for a foul. And I don't, I don't want him to, you know, so like those, those are the things we use. And, and here's the thing, and we'll give you the stir principle. Some of you may have heard of this, but it's something that we look for as officials, you know, when, when ruling on hand check fouls, it's called the stir principle, S T I R. The S stands for stayed hands. If you, if you keep your hands, if you keep your hands on that ball handler, that's a hand check foul. The T in stir is two hands. If you place two hands and check your opponent, all right, if you put two hands on them, that's a, that's a foul. That's a hand check foul. The, the uh, I is impede. If you impede their freedom of movement. So a lot of times you see this in situations where, okay, let's talk about hedge and recover. High ball screens on the perimeter, okay? We have the defender hedging and then they recover. Well, when they go out for the hedge, sometimes they jump out to hedge and they'll jump into and put their hands to check that ball handle that's coming around to try to check them so that their guy can recover and get back in his defensive position, right? So when that hedge, when he jumps out to hedge, sometimes he'll put his hands on there. He'll put two hands or he'll put his hand in his chest just to check him and impede his freedom of movement. That is a hand, that's a hand check foul. All right, and we've been directed to keep an eye out for plays just like that one where they jump out, they put one hand in their chest and it impedes their freedom of movement. And then the R in stir is reroute. So this gets into, if they reroute the dribbler with their hands or with an arm bar and they reroute them and push them, basically, essentially move them off the dribbler's straight line path, then they rerouted them and they impeded their freedom of movement and that's a foul. Okay, so freedom of, going back to it, if you think of it through the lens of freedom of movement, um, you know, create freedom of movement is our directive. You know, so we got to reduce the physicality in order to create freedom of movement. That's one of the ways we do that. You know, it may seem like nitpicky to the coaches from time to time, but rest assured, we're not just looking at the simple act itself of placing a hand on a ball handler or a dribbler. All right. We're looking, does, does this affect this play? Can I avoid calling this by talking them out of it because it's not illegal yet? You know, when they put that one hand on, hey, take it off, take it off. You know, um, but if they jump up, if they if they try to check that opponent in any way and, and impede their freedom of movement or reroute them off their straight line path, then that's a foul. And one of the other acronyms that we use for that is if um, if that contact caused by the defender by placing their hands or their arm bar on a ball handler or dribbler, if it if it um, affects that dribbler or ball handlers. RSBQ, rhythm, balance, speed, or quickness, then a foul has occurred. Rhythm, balance, speed, or quickness. So if that contact knocks them off their rhythm, they're, they're a dribble drive to the basket, they're driving the lane, that player kind of bumps them with an arm bar or has an arm bar on them as they're trying to go up. Now, just you know this as a shooter, Steve. When you're dribble driving and you're going up for a float, let's say a floater in the lane, you're right there in the middle of the paint. Okay. As soon as you gather that ball and you start going up for your shot, and as soon as you leave your feet, even the slightest arm bar in your or elbow, even if it's not extended, the slightest arm bar in your side while you're airborne can bump you off your and, and impede your, your balance or your rhythm. You know, so those are things that we look for and we've been directed to look for as officials. Um, same thing can happen when. All right. Here's a here's another great example. Um, you, you know how dribbles from backcourt to frontcourt in transition, and you've got a defender running alongside of the dribbler. Well, coming up from the, I'm the new trail. All right. I was the old lead position. 
down on the baseline. Well, the ball turned over. I'm now the new trail, so I'm trailing the play. I'm the trail official, okay? I have a great look to see between those two players that are running in a straight line path towards the other end of the, the court, right? So I'm, I'm looking right between them. Well, that, that defender is right on his hip or her hip, you know? If they move any direction into their straight line path and initiate contact and knock that dribbler off the, and knock them off balance or off rhythm or, or, or affect their speed or quickness because of that contact, I have to come get that as a foul because now it puts that ball handler, that dribbler at a disadvantage because they moved into their straight line path and initiated contact, even if it's slight, mm-hmm. if it knocks them off their balance or their rhythm or speed or quickness, then, then we've, we've got to come get that. So that's another example. One more question. We could do this whole podcast on hand checking. I think. Um, I know, right. What, what, so is there anything about the back of the hand compared to the front of the hands, the front of the hand, obviously I got fingers, right. I can, I can get a little more control on a player. If you're driving on me and I, I asked just because we've had coaches teach this of, you know, if you're driving on me and it's really tight to my body and can I, you know, a lot of times players will use the back of their hand to make some contact. Then also they'll swipe that hand through. It's good to pop a basketball out. Is there anything that you look for uh, from that point of view, or is there a better way to put it? What are some ways that as coaches, right, you, you've done a great job of explaining what's, what's illegal. You know, what are those things that are perfectly legal and that, coaches can try to emphasize more off some that we are playing by those same standards and rules. Now that's great. Let me first answer that, that first part of that question. So to you, to you guys, like obviously, and to me, it's obvious that you can get more control of that, that ball handler as a defender. If you have your, the front of your hand on them, you can, you could grab them, check them that way. However, we see a growing trend in the game is when a defend a primary defender gets beat on a dribble drive or they're about to get beat. They usually use that inside hand that's right alongside. They use that inside hand and put it across their the, drib- the ball handler and the dribbler's body to try to check them, to try to impede their freedom of movement. That's where – that's so the, the ones where they put the front of their hand on them and check them are easy for officials. The tough ones are those. Did that hand right there impede their freedom of movement? And that's when you go back to – when in doubt on this, and and here's the thing, most of the time when I say a win in doubt, it goes to, um, we, we give benefit of the doubt. Uh, most of the time in those situations, it's to not call something. You know what I mean? If we're, if we're unsure. In this case with hand checks, if they keep an extended arm bar on them, and it's, even if it's the back of their hand and their arm in the front of the dribbler, benefit of the doubt on that goes to the dribbler because he could he could have his freedom of movement impaired on that play and so those are the tougher ones to call but that's a growing trend we see is when the dribble drive on a dribble drive the defender gets primary defender is starting to get beat they try to to catch back up and then you go back to the rule four section 24 which talks about illegal use of hand legal and illegal use of hands and it's illegal to place your hand on an opponent and use your hand or arm on an opponent in any way which not only impedes their freedom of movement, but to act as an aid in starting or stopping. So that hand, the back of the hand on there, we see as a growing trend of them trying to impede their freedom of movement, but also act as an aid in stopping that player from getting around them. Does that make sense? No, that makes right. it makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. Perfect. Let, perfect. Let's keep let's keep it moving to 
post play. And I was, you know, surprised to see this in there because I didn't know people still played in the post. I know. Um, I was about to say, bro. <laughs> with uh, it's a perimeter, it's a perimeter, the perimeter, it's a perimeter game. game. Um, but talking about, there's still, I mean, all jokes aside, there's a ton of action in, in the paint. The game may not be the same style, right? It may be, but there's still offense rebounds. There's still loose balls. There's a ton of players driving to the paint. There's a ton of players cutting to the paint. And then I love it when we see uh, actual post player down there as well. So ball's always going to be played around the basket because that's where the basket is. So talk a little bit about some of those freedom of movement and illegal contact issues regarding the post. Yeah, man. I, just like you said with hand checks, we could do a whole podcast session on um, our episode on post play physicality, even even despite the fact that there's not as much post play today, like you said, as we've seen in the past. It's more of a perimeter game. However, just like you said, a lot of action down there in the post area. With that said, the NFHS even mentioned in their point of emphasis this year that the that there was a study done um, the most the highest amount of injuries anywhere on the court occur in the post. All right. Despite the fact that there's not as much post play or traditional post play as we've seen in the past, you know, so more injuries occur in the post. And so that's why it's imperative of us to be able to officiate post play physicality and do so consistently. Okay. Um, there's a lot of great stuff you talked about. Let's, let's start with something that I've identified from coaches as something that, that maybe is taught a certain way by many, many coaches that I've seen, um, but is illegal. Okay. Um, that's always a good place to start. Let's talk about post-ups and box outs because they occur in the post. You know, most of the time occur in the post. It is legal for a player to post up with elbows bent. All right. With elbows bent and their palms up, um, kind of like a, a 90 degree angle on their elbows. It doesn't specify that, but with your elbows bent and your hands up to receive that, it is illegal if you use a straight arm to hook around and impede the freedom of movement of the defender trying to interrupt that entry pass to the post or trying to make a play on the ball or trying to get around you in any way. A lot of times it's taught by, I've seen it taught by coaches, all right? And maybe some of your listeners have taught this. In the post, a lot of times it's taught, they're, they're taught to kind of fill out the defender on their back who's defending the entry pass or defending the post, right? To kind of keep them behind them and, you know, maybe have one arm behind them, holding them and one arm up to receive the entry pass to the post. Well, okay, that in itself, unless you're holding them, is not illegal in and of itself. But if that defender tries to make a move around that post player in any way and is affected and his freedom of movement is impeded by that straight arm that's holding him back, that's a foul. That's going to be an offensive foul, a team control foul on that post player trying to receive that entry pass because he used a straight arm to impede the freedom of movement of an opponent. All right. Likewise, in the post, it is illegal for the defender to use his, his arms, hands, knee, leg in any way to bump that post player off their spot and displace them. A lot of times you see it with a mismatch in the post. A bigger post player is down there and a smaller defender is on him. Mismatch in the post, there's an entry pass to the post is imminent. 
And that smaller defender doesn't have any choice to defend that except to kind of put his knee in his butt and try to move him off his spot. Well, just because that that defender is smaller doesn't mean he gets any more rights than any other player does. If he moves him off his spot and displaces him, then that's a foul on the defender. So there's a lot of things that we need to look for as the officials, particularly the lead, who's the lead official on the baseline, who's officiating post-play action specifically, um, and body contact in the post, um, a lot for them to, to keep an eye on down there. Um, so the, the point you should take away from it is, and you can also relate this to box outs. When you're talking about the offensive player, box outs are even worse because coaches have been teaching for years, for years, to, you, to have them put their arms behind them to keep the defender behind them and then just back them out. How many – were you taught that growing up? I was taught it. Yes and no. Like, I mean, I guess we were kind of taught to, you know, get get hands and kind of feel. But then, um, you know, we were taught, like, you got to get your hands out because you can't catch it unless your hands are open, right? So, okay, good. you know, you want to – I could hold you back from getting it, but I can't get it either. Right. We got to get right. the ball at some point. So I like that. I, I guess I wasn't, you know, taught. What about the back out? What about, hold. what about the back out part? Because that's the part I was more so referring to is them putting their butt finding. Uh, I was taught. All right. Once you see a shot goes up, you turn around, you see the, the defender or the opponent who's going to try to go for that rebound. You put their hand in their chest, turn, mm-hmm. put your butt in them and just back them out. That's yeah. what I was taught. I know yep. a lot of people. Yep. That's it. That's that the old, you know, hit and get or, um, you know, yep. hit, find a fetch and, and yep. absolutely hundred grip. You, 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 you hit, you check them essentially. Then you turn your body and you start backing them out. Yep. For yep. Sure. And so, and so that, that is illegal. Okay. So, and that's, that's been taught, I know across the country for years and years. Um, but here's the thing. And, and you see it all the time when those fouls are called, when I I'll say for me personally, when I call those fouls in the game, what do you think the number one response from the offended coach is? Or the, the, not the offended coach, the offending coach, the one who just got the foul called on his guy. Hey, he was boxing out, Chip. He was boxing out. That's how we teach. That's how we teach. That's the number one response I get every time I call a foul on a box out and a closeout like that. So just, just know that just because you teach it doesn't make it legal. Now, I will say this. There's a nuance to this, all right? There's, like, there's an art as an official, we want to keep the game moving if possible. We do, people didn't come to watch us officiate, Steve. You know, we, they came to watch the players play the game, right? That doesn't mean we're gonna we're gonna go lax on our job and not enforce the rules as written like we're supposed to. But in these situations, if they impede their if they if they put their let's say on a box out specifically, all right. If they've got their hands back and maybe their their freedom of movement is being impeded you know, the person, the defender or their opponent behind them. Um, but that ball hits off the, the rim and goes the other direction. It doesn't even come to that matchup. We're going we're gonna to let that go. And it didn't affect the play at all, you know. Now, if it's obvious and egregious and he's completely backing him out, you know, and it's an obvious displacement, then, yeah, we'll, we'll hop on that. But it's something we call possession consequence, all right? Are if you the really going to call foul if um... – so, so they, they're, they're turning their boxing out, but as you said, I got more L's at the elbows, right? And I'm not mm-hmm. putting my hands back, right? right. How, how much are you looking at that? You know, what, what's the likelihood you're calling that box out a foul with my, where I'm, I'm 
making contact here compared to trying to corral them and keep them behind me with my hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it's still at the end of the day, if they're backing out and displacing that opponent that's on their back, whether they are in a legal post up or a legal box out position or not, they could be in an initial like legal box out position where they've got their hands up in an L shape, you know, bent at the elbows and they've got their butt on them. But if they start backing them out and displacing them, then that's a foul. But those are situations like you talked about. If they're in a good position like that with their hands, they got their hands up, elbows bent, um, looking for the rebound, stuff like that. And that, and they're starting to back them out a little bit. And it's not super obvious, but they're, they're backing them out a little. And that shot goes off the rim and goes the other direction. And whoever was supposed to get the rebound got the rebound. No possession consequence whatsoever. Let's play on. All right. So that's the art of officiating versus the science of it. Okay. The good officials are able to determine in real time, did this minimal contact have an effect on the play? It could be illegal if they impeded their freedom of movement and prevented them from getting the rebound. It's definitely illegal if that happens, right? Um, or if they backed them out and displaced them and caused them not to have a chance at a, at a rebound when they previously had an advantageous position. Those things are easy ones to call. <clears throat> the tough ones to call are the ones where they're kind of backing them up a little bit, even when they're in a legal position with their hands and arms. Um, but the, the ball starts coming towards them. And then you have to determine in real time, this is tough in real time, determine did, did that back out, did he displace him first of all? And if he did, that's a foul because it prevented him from trying to get the rebound as well. You know? So those are the things that are really difficult to, to rule on in real time. And likewise for the defender who's on that, um, players back the inside opponent trying to get the rebound on a box out for the opponent that's behind that player. Now I think we might've talked about this before, but you know, you hear over the back a lot. Well, if they both jump up for the rebound and there's no illegal contact, we're not going to penalize the outside opponent for getting that rebound just because he's taller or has the ability to jump higher than the inside opponent. All right. What we're not looking to see if he got a rebound over the guy's head or over his back. Because over, over the back is not an actual rule in any rule book ever written. It's just a street term that people use, but they use it as a substitute for illegal contact, but it's not. I mean, you know, there's plenty of times where you hear coaches yell over the back and there was no illegal contact at all. They didn't displace them. They didn't, you know, um, use their hands or arms on them to, to leverage themselves for a advantage, more advantageous position. Um, so it, it was legal, but a lot of times you do see on the converse or the reverse side of that, the defender put their arm bar in the back of an inside opponent who's jumping for a rebound. And I'm sure you've seen this same thing we just said with an airborne player when you have an elbow in them. If an inside opponent is trying to jump for a rebound and that defender has their arm bar in the back of them, then that's going to impede their freedom of movement to be able to jump freely in a vertical plane to get that rebound or jump forward to the, or jump backwards to the rebound or whatever. So those are fouls as well. There's a lot for us to watch in the post. Um, and those are just those are just a couple of the areas. Um, the other ones that are there, we've really been instructed to keep an eye on is after the post player receives an entry pass into the post. A lot of times once they've received the ball in the post and they've got their defender on their back, we're um, directed to, to really take a close eye at back down plays. A lot of times you see the same kind of same kind of things we just talked about with boxing out, you see a lot of displacement. Now, the tough part for officials is on back down plays, once they receive the, the entry pass in the post 
they turn their side a little bit and they try to back their shoulder down into that defender. Well, if that defender's in a legal guarding position with both feet on their floor, with their torso facing their, their opponent, all right, then if they go through, if they stand their ground and that player goes through their chest, then that's displacement. That's an offensive foul, a player control foul. But the, the tough part for officials is we have to determine whether or not that defender was giving ground or if they were actually displaced. That's very tough sometimes because, tough. and and some of the keys that the red flags that we look for is, is the defender bellying up? It is not legal to belly up either. You can't belly up or use your, your knees or any ways like to try right. to push ride them, them out with your body. Yeah. Ride them out with your body. You can't do that either. But then sometimes when they anticipate the defender anticipates that player kind of coming into their chest, they'll jump a little bit. And I mean, it's ever so slightly, but they'll jump a little bit and give ground instead of holding their spot. So here's some, here's some good free advice for coaches listening. If you want to draw more fouls, please do not, first of all, please do not take what I'm about to say as, uh, as basically an endorsement for you to encourage flopping with your players. Do not do that. We're trying to get flopping out of the game. It has no place in the game. I hate it. Officials hate it. It's hard enough to do our job as it is without, without players trying to fake and, and trick us into calling a foul that's not there. Okay, so I'm not encouraging that at all. What I am saying is teach your, your players in the post, if they've got a legal position behind a guy who just received an entry pass in the post, and you know based on film that that player usually tries to back down his smaller opponents or, or even his bigger opponents, who cares? Backs them down either way. Encourage your guys to stand their ground on that. Take that contact right into their chest. Do not embellish it all. Just take the contact, be displaced, and that's an offensive foul. It'll be called every time. If now do not tell them to throw their head back, do not tell them to because those things work against you. It makes us think, even if there was illegal contact, it makes us think that they're flopping and that they're trying to draw a foul. All right, and trick us into calling something. So, even if we're on the fence about whether or not that was illegal, a head bob backwards or a, a yell or a scream or throwing their hands back or throwing their body to the court, and 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 here's another important point throwing their body back at a force that is unnatural and is, does not compare to the force they just received in their chest, those things can hinder you from getting a call. And it make it causes the ref to think, mm, man, I don't think I want to put a whistle on that. Cause he, he just, maybe he'd embellished and didn't flop. Maybe there was illegal contact, but man, I don't want to reward him for that. You know? And in the moment, in a split second, we may not have a conscious, you know, thought in our head about that, but it just may cause us enough pause to not blow the whistle. And you lose a lot of trust throughout the rest of the game, right? If you if you're exactly. flopping around and, and let's say, okay, we all make mistakes. Let's say let's say you make a mistake and you call that kid for offensive foul because the defensive player flopped. But then you process and be like, you know what? That kid's acting, right? Yeah. Give him an Academy Award, but I'm not I'm not I'm taking it away. Like we're not gonna give him the benefit because he's acting like a soccer player out here and we're trying to play, we're trying to play basketball, you know. Um so um, You're absolutely right, man. You're absolutely right. And that's, that's something that, you know, we talk about back to the point of instant or, or enforcing, or excuse me, enforcing the rules as written and, um, you know, getting illegal contact and reducing illegal contact in our game. When we go back to those things, we've got to, as officials, judge the act. We have to judge the act itself, right? And see, does it, what, what effect does it have on the play? Was it illegal contact or was it incidental contact? 
there's when players, and this is important for coaches to remember, you know, when 10 players are moving rapidly on a court, and it even says this in the rule book with incidental contact, when 10 players are moving rapidly on the court, there's going to be contact. Not all of it is illegal. Some of it is incidental to that player performing an, a normal offensive or defensive movement. That's what incidental means. It doesn't mean accidental. All right. So there's an important distinction there. Doesn't mean the context was contact was an accident. It just means it's, it was incidental to that player being able to perform a normal offensive or defensive movement. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, that's important to remember, but we have to look at some of these, when we look at these plays in a vacuum, all right, we were able to say, okay, that was illegal contact. That was not, but on the court, sometimes it's difficult to draw that line. So mm -hmm. you don't want to give yourself any, you don't want to give your, your team, give themselves any reason to, to make the ref pause on things like that. So head bobs, um, you know, throwing your head back or throwing your body back at a force that was not received. Um, or here's the one uh, in high school, you see it a lot. And I know this wasn't a point of emphasis, so I won't even spend much time on it, but flopping is something that, that gets me going. So I want to, I want to get it out of the game, just like all the federations do and the, the national associations do is drives to the basket, a smaller point guard, a lot of times jumps to do a layup from like a, a the block you know, and so they'll jump to do a layup and without contact at all, they won't land on their feet. They'll just fall to the floor. You know what I mean? Like it, it happens all the time in high school basketball, particularly down here. All right. They just go up for a layup, no contact whatsoever. And then they just land on their, they, they hit, let their feet hit and then just roll on the floor or slide on the floor to try to make everybody think they just got fouled or try to draw an in one. No. You're not fooling us, all right? The, those those things are not permitted. And so if it happens in my game, I'm going to be talking to the coach, and I'm going to, it's going to go like this. Coach, zero, every time on his drive to the basket, your point guard, every time when he goes up for a floating layup or a driving layup, he jumps in the air, he lays it up, no contact, and he falls to the floor. Why? Why is he falling to the floor? You know, and so I'll ask him that. <clears throat> oh, you know, maybe he got fouled. No, coach, I, I was on the play. He didn't get fouled. So what I'm going to tell you is he's faking being fouled. By rule, technically, by rule in NFHS, faking being fouled is a player technical foul. Please tell him to stop doing that. I don't want to have to penalize. No, I'll tell you this. I've never penalized in high school. I've never given a technical foul for faking being fouled. Because usually, if I have that discussion with coaches, it works. And they tell Zero, hey, stop, man. He's watching you. That's a technical. We don't want, we don't want to put ourselves in jeopardy. So just, just enough, that's one that I see all the time. Or the, when they jump up for the layup, They'll use that off arm, the, the player going up for the shot, will use that off arm and put it in the chest of the defender who's jumping vertically within their vertical plane and then kind of nudge off of them to make it look like he got pushed off his line. And then he falls. Well, no, we're, we're, our antennas are up for that play too now, guys. So if you've got a ball handler that does that and uses their off arm to kind of extend and push off that guy to make it look like he was fouled, you're actually at risk of your offensive player, your shooter being called for a foul in that case, if it pushes them off that, that vertical legal defender off that spot. Anyway, like sorry, that. that's all I wanted to say about that. No, that's good stuff. And you mentioned the and one, see if you can talk to your official friends. Here's a rule I'd like to see put in for NFHS. All right. Okay. And I, also with this soccer thing, I'm being sorry. I played soccer. I know I, I did soccer, too. Right? I played I played, it's great for your footwork. It's, it's one of the most, I think that in tennis, from a footwork standpoint, related oh, yeah. to basketball than any other. Any other, so I, I actually love for a soccer player. Now, the and one, one of my biggest frustrations is when 
players go to the basket and they yell and one and they didn't get fouled and they didn't make the shot. That's not and one, right? That's not and one. So what I would like to see is it's a technical. If you call and one, if you say and one, it's not and one technical foul for your team. The only time, hear me out. The only time you can yell and one is if you make the free throw, you can run back on defense and then you can scream and one, right? Because even if, if I make the shot on you and you fouled me, all right, official blows the whistle. I didn't make the free throw yet. So I technically have gotten and one point. So you've got an and chance for one and chance for one. Exactly. So I'm going to stay quiet. I knock my free throw down. Now I can go back and hoot and holler. <laughs> and I can say and one, and one, right? If any and one call before that, technical foul. See, I love 90, it. Actually, I 90 plus percent of the and ones that I hear throughout the course of a basketball game are not and ones. So we're just trying to eliminate <laughs> that aspect of the game. Let's put it put it in the rules, baby. Put, put it in, in the rules. rules. You like, know people. Actually, too. you know people. Let's try to make this happen. Actually, right? I wish I wish they would make the penalty for faking being fouled a little less like NCAA men's has with a class B technical foul and the ball back at the mm-hmm. point of interruption. Mm-hmm. You know, like that here's the thing, you know, I'll I'll mention this cuz we mentioned flopping. Just in case you guys are college basketball lovers or college basketball coaches, you probably already know this if you are, but there's no more flopping warning anymore in NCAA men's basketball. There's no warning anymore. It's an immediate class B technical foul if you flop or fake being fouled. So what that means is class B technical foul comes with a penalty of one shot or one free throw for any member or any player or eligible substitute of the offended team and then ball back at the point of interruption. So maybe you flopped while you had the ball. All right. The offensive team had the ball and uh, the offensive player did a head bob. Okay, well, we call a class B technical foul right there. So the other team will be able to go down, shoot a free throw. And then the team that had the ball originally will still get the ball back. But it's only one free throw, you know. But I think I like the way that they move towards that to try to get flopping out of the game because we're seeing it less and less now over the course of the last two years. That's good to hear. That's really good to to hear. Um, Off ball play. Off ball play. You mentioned some of, you know, one touch on before we hit record. You're, each official is responsible for an area of the court, right? And so off-ball play, there's screens, there's cuts, there's a, you know, like you said, it's still a physical game. So make sure you make sure you just add that in to the point emphasis on off-ball plays and, um, you know, unnecessary contact. Perfect. Yeah, that's a great segue into that. Um, I'll start by saying this. We are, un, we are uneffective as officials, as a crew, as a team, whenever we don't trust the system. And what I mean by trust the system is this, we have a system in place, our officiating systems. We have mechanics in place that can allow us to, if done correctly, be able to see most of the court at any given time and most of the matchups on the court at any given time. If we're disciplined to stick to those mechanics and to that system, and we trust our partners to handle their responsibilities in their coverage areas, all right? So for those, a lot of you coaches may know, but for those who don't, and I'm going to address this because like I told Steve before we hit record is, you know, at least two or three times a game, I'll have a coach, you know, after a no call occurs in one of my partner's areas, you know, like they'll say I'm the one closest to them. So they'll say, Chip, 
how did he not call it? How, how would, how'd you not call an illegal screen there? Where's the illegal, or, you know, why didn't you call that? Or this uh, coach, what are you talking about? And he's like, that, that was an illegal screen. I'm like, coach, I, I mean, I had a competitive matchup. I'm the lead official on the baseline. I had a competitive matchup right here on the block. I'm not looking up there. If I'm looking up there, then I could miss something down here. So we have that system in place to make sure that off-ball action is covered just as much as on-ball action, that we have our eyes in the right place. Guys, the most guys, girls, the most important thing in officiating, well, there's there's three things, all right? You know, you got to know the rules, first of all. If you're an official, that's the most important thing, in my opinion, is to know the rules, actually know the rules, not just what they, you know, a general, you got to actually know the rules, all right? Um, that's the most important thing. Angles and positioning are the, the second most important thing. And then trusting the system, all right? So, like, angles and positioning, if I'm in the lead, so I'm the lead official, which is the official on the baseline or the inline, as they call it in high school. Um, if I'm the lead official on the baseline, I'm responsible for you split the lane right up the middle, down the center of the court, all right? Split the lane right up from the baseline to the free throw line. And then the side of the court that I'm on, I've got that side of the lane, my side of the lane, all the way out to inside the three-point arc from the free throw line extended down on my side. That's my coverage area, all right? I'm going, we're taught to be ball aware in the lead. If the ball's out on the perimeter, we want to be aware of where the ball is because we need to mirror the ball as lead. But I'm not, I'm not paying any attention to that on-ball matchup. I'm aware of where the ball is outside of my peripheral vision. But if I've got a competitive matchup in my area, maybe let's say like we were talking about earlier, post play, a potential entry pass to the post on that strong side low block, that is where my attention is. Because what we've identified, the National Federation identified it as well, there's a lot of times where we're missing off-ball contact, and sometimes this is egregious and even flagrant contact that we're missing. All it takes, if you have three officials, let's say it this way, if you have three sets of eyes watching the same exact thing, that's a broken system. Because then you're offic you have three people officiating two players, the on-ball matchup, the primary matchup, and nobody officiating the other eight. What do you think is going to happen? You know, if you if if players identify that, they think, you know, oh, Kobe Bryant did this better than anybody. He studied where the officials were on the court. He studied what they were supposed to be looking at to use to his advantage because he knew maybe I could get away with a couple things here and there. Well, what if those people that are wanting to get away with something and learn where we're looking and we're, learn that we're all looking at the ball incorrectly on this play and that guy on the other end of the court just kind of gave him a, a gut punch, you know, well, if they know I'm not looking, we've seen clips of this, guys, that have circulated across the country. We've seen elbows being flung and hitting people square in the face and knocking them out, and the officials have no clue how that player ended up on the floor. That cannot happen. As officials, we've each got our own primary coverage area that we're responsible for. Trail's got his own. The center or slot officials got their own. I've got my own in the lead. You know, And obviously, we rotate those positions based on you know where the – the ball dictates, you know, where we rotate and matchups and, you know, kind of dictate that as well. So we always want to try to move to the open angles on the court. Off ball, going back to off ball in, or off ball contact. That's something that they've instructed us to watch for. Let's specifically real quick deal with um, perimeter ball screens, for example. Uh, officiating perimeter ball screens or our ball screens, high ball screens at the elbow is a two person job. Okay. You've got the primary official who that, that ball in that primary matchup, that primary defender is in his cover, primary coverage area or her primary coverage area. 
they're focused on that on-ball matchup. Well, if I'm the center or slot official on the other side of the court and I see that high ball screen coming up, I'm watching them come up through the lane, you know, or wherever they're coming from, the perimeter or wherever, and I'm going to help officiate. I'm going to step up and in to help officiate that screening action. Okay. So it's a two person job there. We need to make sure that we're not missing anything. So I'm officiating the screener coming up. So the trail official in his primary area has the one and the two. The one is the ball handler, the two is the um, primary defender. I'm officiating the three and the four, which the three is the screener coming up to set the screen, and the four is the one hedging out to recover, like we talked, or for the hedge and recover, like we talked about earlier. So I'm going to see the screen, and we have specific sequencing that we go through here. I'm going to see a lot of times with high ball screens or perimeter ball screens, they're coming towards the center of the court back to me in the center or slot position. A lot of times we'll see them come off that screen and then they'll see them kick to the, to the wing for a quick three pointer, right? That's a, that's a normal action that happens. So our sequencing is screen line defender. And when I say sequencing, I'm talking about our eyes. We're not just looking at those players. We're looking at specific things about these players. So I'm, I'm officiating the number three right there, the guy who's coming up to set the screen. I'm going to watch him set that screen and make sure he's in a legal screening position. Once I see that screen is legal and I see that the guy, the ball handler is dribbling around that screen, I'm going screen line defender. So that I'm seeing the screen is legal. I'm seeing the, the dribbler pass the ball to his teammate on the wing close to me, like right in front of me. So I've got screen, then I'm going my eyes to – the line, which means I need to make sure that that catch and shoot shooter is behind the three point line. And then I'm going defender. And then I'm officiating that shooter up, down, rebound. That's our sequence there. So screen line defender. So my eyes could go through six different movements within a matter of one second if I'm doing my job correctly on a high ball screen, kick and shoot. I just want to say to our listeners, how fired up is this guy? about breaking <laughs> down like a, a ball screen slot action. Like as excited as he gets about this is like how excited I get about uh, like a kid making a crossover drum and like, okay, yeah. where was the spacing between them and the defender, right? What was the read? Was it a front foot strike, a heel strike, a midfoot strike? Well, yep. you know, were they able to cover multiple steps? You know, where were their eyes? Was their shoulder dropped? Like, where was their offhand? Was it able to protect? Like, all those little things that I look for on a simple, you know, a kid taking a crossover dribble against a defender in two or three steps. Like, that's how excited you are about this stuff. And this is what we yeah, need. Like, I absolutely love it. So I probably would have saved some of those comments for that. Like, it was just, this is really good <laughs> stuff. And I hope our listeners, you know, just appreciate the the passion that you have for this game and how much work and detail goes into it that from the outside looking in, a lot of times it's not, you know, we just think, oh, you know, kid came up, set a ball screen, they called a foul. I didn't think they, you know, it was a foul last time. They didn't call it that, you know, they're, they're just not, they're not going to that next level, right? Mm -hmm. And then you're breaking down, no, there's there's layer one, there's layer two, there's yeah. layer three. Like <laughs> these, these are progressions that just keep going, right? Well, and, so, and that's that's a great point, Steve, because, because and I, I love it too from your standpoint. Like, I, the same way I'm about this, you are about your thing, right? And about coaching and skill development, all that stuff, like things that you do really well and that you're passionate about. I don't know as much about that, what you do as you do, you know? And so I put in a lot of effort on my end as a lot of officials do, all right? Especially at the college level, the high school officials don't just assume that they don't put in the work because I know a lot of them that do, all right? 
Um, but we're passionate about it because we love it and we want to be the best at, as that we can possibly be at our craft. Right. So there's a lot that goes into it. Um, but to be the best, you've got to put in that preparation in anything that you do, you know, and so that I, with that in particular, with all fall action, I'm re the reason I'm really passionate about that is because those are the things that sometimes, you know, don't get noticed as often. And this is my last point on this, because I know we need to move on. Just know as a coach, you know, to, well, I'll say it this way as a coach, from my experience, seeing you guys and, and, and dealing with you guys during the games and our interactions and stuff like that. I know that most coaches on particular action in the front court are only watching the ball or the primary matchup. On a dribble drive to the lane, you can't tell me as a coach that you're getting your eyes to that secondary defender quickly to see if he's in a legal guarding position and to see if your guy goes through a legal defender on his dribble drive. No, you're watching your player dribble through the lane and you're watching him lay up the ball or dunk the ball. And then when I call a foul on it, if it goes against you, you're going to say, how in the world? Or you're going to say, oh, good call. But you you don't know because you weren't as, as the lead in that position. My job is to identify the defender that can hurt me the most as quickly as possible once I see a dribble drive is imminent and that primary defender has been beaten. I'm not watching that primary defender or that ball handler. They're in my peripheral vision, so I'm ball aware, a matchup oriented. As soon as I see that dribble drive down the lane, I'm getting my eyes to the secondary defender stepping over to take a charge as quickly as I can because then I'm going to determine does he have both feet on the floor with his torso facing the opponent before that shooter leaves the floor. And if he does – slash coaching clinic right now. I love it. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> so, but, but we're watching – I'm watching those things because that's my job. Right. You're watching the ball and your player, you know, and, and maybe some other things, but that's your job, you know. But to just know that on some of those block charge plays are tough, tough enough as it is, <laughs> but it's much tougher if you don't have your eyes in the right place as an official. And our calls go down, our call correct, our call accuracy goes down drastically when we don't get our eyes to that defender as quickly as possible. So just know we're trying to look at things that maybe you, you aren't looking at. And so I'm not saying give us grace on some things. Sometimes we make some bad calls. Don't get me wrong. I, I know I do. But going back to the off-ball thing to tie that bow on this, the off-ball contact, illegal contact, specific other areas they want us to focus on is ball screens for sure, or, or screens off the ball particularly, and then freedom of movement for cutters. So if you have cutters going across the lane and a, a defender steps up and checks them while they're trying to cut, then that's something else, an off-ball situation in which they want us to, to be aware of and officiate that call um, correctly efficiently and with accuracy across the board. Well, thank you for emphasizing those, those characteristics of illegal contact. There's some more point of, points of emphasis uh, from the NFHS, some that are not regarding contact. And it, to go back on the, the block charge that you mentioned, if you get a chance to listen to one of our previous episodes, we, Chip took a deep dive into the block charge call. Um, so make sure you go back. He's been on a couple episodes in the past. Um, and, and we'll get a chance, but I'll probably share and, and link a couple of those episodes as well, because those are great listens as well. Thank you for listening to part one on illegal contact, hand checks, post play, off ball play with official Chip Clark. He continues to drop some gems in part two. So stay tuned for that sportsmanship, pregame meeting, coaches, players, 
conduct, uniforms, apparel, all those good things that we want to keep in mind before we get into our basketball games this season. Thank you for listening to the Coach's Edge podcast. Appreciate you. Positive rating, positive review. Share this with a friend. Y'all share this with a friend, especially a coach as they head up in the season. That would be extremely beneficial for everyone involved. Thanks again to Chip, and we'll talk to you soon.